Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. It's found on page 1167 in the blue Bibles in front of you. We're going to read down to verse 19, part A. This is the word of God for the people of God, so listen. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, would you open our eyes to see the glory of your power and love and grace that converts even the most hardened sinner who is running away from your holy purposes. Thank you that you uh, grab us right in the middle of our way and turn us to a new way through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If there's any Lord pursuing another way other than Christ, Lord, turn them even today. Lord, if there's any believer in Jesus who is tired of walking in this way, would you refresh their joy and their desire to to obey you through this word in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've watched those manhunt movies or fugitive movies like The Fugitive. Sometimes they can be very confusing. Because we all know just because someone's wearing a badge doesn't necessarily mean they are actually on the right side of the law. They might be the law, they might have the law behind them, but sometimes we have rogue rulers, we have rogue leaders, even rogue uh, police. And so if you see someone running, sometimes we automatically think, oh, they're guilty, right? If we see someone in hot pursuit uh, with a bubble machine on the top, we say, ah, that person is automatically righteous. 
Well, we get confused in this passage because we see someone who is has the full right of the law behind them pursuing people who are actually innocent. And we see that God himself takes it upon himself to grab this man named Saul who is persecuting the church and turn him, as we're going to see in a minute, into his chosen instrument to pursue the nations for the sake of Jesus and to grab them and bring them into the fold of, of his family, the church. So if you're finally outlined, really our main idea is that Saul seeks to capture those who follow the way. But by the grace of Christ, a church destroyer becomes a church planter. Don't count anybody out. So let's see how Saul goes after the Christians. We've taken sort of a break from Saul in uh, Acts chapter 8. Uh, we leave him where it says, And Saul approved of his execution. This is uh, Stephen, the first martyr. And there rose on that day a great persecution in, against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And now we see in this chapter they've scattered even as far as into Syria, which is considered the nations, right? Remember Acts 1.8? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, now the uttermost parts of the earth. We've arrived. The uttermost parts of the earth. This was a Roman uh, outpost, a major city between Jerusalem and what we know as Babylon. So this is a major Super highway. This was a transnational highway, and this was a great crossroads of culture and and markets, and uh, and here we see of religion. It's where the refugees of this newfound faith in Jesus go to run and hide. But we see the extent to which Saul will go to pursue those who are fleeing his grasp, and we have to think about. As we think sometimes in these movies, as, as some of you I've talked to want to be an FBI profiler, right? Sometimes we read these characters and they're very flat and they're very sort of flannel graph or maybe veggie tale pictures of Bible characters. I want us to get a rich idea of what Saul is processing and what is driving him because then we begin to see how Jesus is driving towards us and into our hearts to grab hold of us in all of our motivations and in all of our fears and all of the ways in which we think we're right, and then he changes that. So let's get inside of Saul's head. One of my favorite New Testament scholars, Ben Witherington III, says this about what the true Christian message is and why it was so bothersome to Saul, a Jewish uh, zealous uh, religious leader. He says, In calling Jews to worship a crucified Jewish manual worker named Jesus, and is speaking about the transcending of the ethnic and social distinctiveness of Judaism in regard to circumcision, various of the purity and food laws, temple piety and pilgrimages. This surely stretched all normal definitions of early Judaism past the breaking point. To be sure, early Christians like Paul and Luke saw their new faith as the true development or completion of the Jewish faith. But the majority of early Jews, including Saul of Tarsus, whom we're talking about right now, before his Damascus Road experience, saw this as not merely a version, but rather a profound perversion of Judaism. So even in our passage, it's very interesting. It says he had letters from the chief high priest to go after anyone who was following, quote-unquote, 
the way. Isn't that an interesting way to describe the gospel of Jesus? What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's always interesting to, to figure out what your uh, nickname will be, right? Sometimes you find out on your, your football team or your freshman dorm, and that name sometimes sticks so that someone at their wedding uh, will say, uh, and the man who's going to give the toast is tiny, and this guy is usually 300 pounds, uh, six foot five, right? Uh, the name sticks. It's very interesting that this name sticks on the early Christians, even before they're called Christians, which we don't see until Acts chapter 15. But this was a, a name that was given to several groups in the Near Eastern world who were preparing for the coming of the Messiah. So scholars think one of these main communities was uh, at Qumran, where we have the, the Dead Sea Scrolls from. They were cleansing themselves, they were praying, they were waiting for Messiah to come, and they thought because they were so pure, Messiah would come to them first, not to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was dirty and compromised and, and, and turned against God. Some scholars believe that another of these communities was in Damascus, so much so that there were different, uh, a number of synagogues of people worshiping the true God. And then, because of the gospel, and then because of gospel uh, persecution against those who believed this way, now there are people in Damascus believing that Jesus is the Messiah. So Saul, with all that in mind, believes that he is doing God a favor by pursuing the adherence of this new false teaching called the way. And you might think, well, why wouldn't he target uh, the church in Jerusalem? This was like shooting a fish in a barrel. You have all the apostles, it says in chapter 8, in Jerusalem. Why wouldn't he take them out? Well, I think as we saw in chapter 5, every time they were thrown into prison, an angel would jailbreak them. Right. Anytime that they would beat these uh, believers in Jesus, they would keep speaking in the name that they were told never to speak. And they says, all we can do is tell you what we've seen. We've seen this Jesus. He is alive and he has changed our lives forever. We're just going to talk about our story about this Lord who is real and true and risen from the dead. And so God, even in after the beatings, had multiplied their numbers. People rushed into the church to follow this Savior together. And in chapter 5, Saul's own professor and mentor, Gamaliel, had urged the Sanhedrin council, leave these guys alone. Don't touch them. Remember we talked about if this is a movement and it's man-made, it will collapse the minute that you strike the leader. People don't have a lot of appetite uh, for taking the heat. Uh, if the leaders are, are taken out, they're going to run. But if this is of God, you won't be able to stop it, and you might even be opposing or resisting God. But by Saul's action and his threats, it says he's breathing out murderous threats of violence against the believers. He seems to uh, appear to believe that his old master had gone soft in the head. Or even worse, soft in the heart to let these believers in the way go. What was needed now was a firm hand. And so Saul reached back in Israel's history for a playbook of how do you crack down on errant movements that would risk this tenuous peace between Roman-occupied Israel and the Roman overlords. 
And in some of uh, maybe your, your Catholic Bibles or, or something on your shelf, in the, first, uh, in the book of 1 Maccabees, which is a roughly historical book of what happens between Malachi and Matthew, we have this verse, chapter 15, 21. Therefore, if any pestilent men have fled to you from their country, hand them over to Simon the high priest that he may punish them according to their law. This quote describes an extradition agreement between the Romans and the Jewish high priest. That even outside of their region, they were able to pursue, quote-unquote, thought criminals and bring haul them back to Jerusalem. And so this arrangement was struck in 174 B.C., and this extradition agreement was reaffirmed by Julius Caesar himself in 138. And we have this noted by Josephus, who is one of our most reliable sources of Jewish-Roman relations, since he himself was a defector from Judaism to the Roman state in the same generation as Jesus. So he's armed with precedent. He's armed with authority. But think about this. If the ESV study Bible chronology of Paul's life is correct, then in this chapter, Saul was between 21 and 25 years old. He was the up-and-comer in Judaism. He was the young buck, for you Star Wars fans. He was the Kylo Ren of his generation. He didn't have a funny mask, breathing weird. But he was driven uh, by wanting to bring back a muscular Judaism that men and women would fear. Saying to the world, you pervert our theology, you speak against the temple, we will hunt you down within the full extent of the law. And so he pursued those on the run, like as we watch uh, uh, the nature channels, like a hyena picking off a young wildebeest, right? The tender newborns of the herd. And what are the tender newborns in, in Acts? It's these Hellenistic Jews and the proselytes who have come to faith and are on the run. And so Saul, armed with his ego and religious zeal and historic precedent and a legal warrant from the, from the high priest, he pursues the followers of this errant idea of a crucified Messiah. And he thinks, I bet they're hiding under the skirts of the old faith in the synagogues of some major city. Where can I go? And he scans the map and he, he scans his, his experience and he says, ah, I know where to find them, Damascus. That's the next big town outside of, of Israel. In fact, this was in the same Roman province of his own hometown, which we know from this passage is Tarsus in Cilicia. And even though Gamaliel warned him about this, he would never have believed that he was fighting a person, much less fighting God, until what happens next, when he sees the light. So we see next that not only does Saul go after Christians, but now we see in this beautiful gospel irony Christ comes after Saul. So as he's on the way to the city, as he's armed with these warrants and he's ready to grab, and it says here, bind every believer in the way and haul them back to Jerusalem, he is blinded by glory. In Acts chapter 22, as he tells this uh, to a pagan ruler, tells his conversion story, he says, this was at high noon, and yet there was something of greater glory than the noontime sun, and I was blinded and I dropped to my knees. It's a question. What is brighter than the sun at noonday? 
Actually, who is brighter than the sun at noonday? Who stops people in their tracks that when they appear, they fall on their faces? Well, in Scripture, we usually have two categories. One is sometimes it's an angel who spends so much time in God's glory that they are glowing with God's glory, right? And the only other option is God himself. And in the Old Testament, we call these theophanies, when God appears in his glory to humans, and you go weak in the knees and you fall on your face. So which is it here? Well, it's actually a third category. We would say it's a Christophany, a Christophany. Christ appears in his glory to Saul. And Christ has now all the attributes of deity, not just because he is now with God, ascended, but because he has always been God. And now we see him exalted and we see him in his true nature revealed to us and revealed to Saul. Because as we saw in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended to heaven and was received into a cloud, which doesn't mean the, the meteorological clouds. This is, you could call this a theological cloud, right? He's received up into glory because, as the Psalms say, the clouds are the dust of his feet. So if you're someone who's the clouds are the dust of your feet, what does that mean? You're so exalted that the highest thing that we can see is the lowest thing that this person uh, stands on. It's his footstool. What is this saying? Jesus is surrounded by glory and light and he shines this light like one of those investigators in the examination room at police headquarters. He shines the light on Saul. But actually, Saul could have seen this glory perhaps before. When could he have seen this? Back in chapter 7, Stephen, as he proclaims the glory of, of God in Jesus, and as he proclaims that the good news that Messiah has come in Jesus, as they're about to stone him and Saul is standing right there, he says, oh, look, I see Jesus, and he is standing at the right hand of God. Saul was right there, but he didn't see it, but God had his time for Saul. And God came and shone his glory on Saul, stopped him in the tracks, and shone on him the glory of the throne room of God. The glory that we know of in Psalm chapter 2 is that God has installed his king. Kiss the sun, lest you perish in your way. And yet, to be confronted by God on this day was not the end of his life. It was actually the beginning. Because not only does the light shine from the throne, but the voice calls out from the throne, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How could Saul be persecuting Jesus? Number one, he'd have to be alive. Number two, we would think Jesus was a historical earthly figure uh, born in Bethlehem from Galilee, crucified outside Jerusalem. Yeah, there were those strange reports, Saul might think, that his body was missing from the tomb that was borrowed from his fellow council member, Joseph of Arimathea. So what does this mean? Well, it means that these adherents of this strange teaching that, that Saul was trying to stamp out, in actuality, 
these believers in the way were actually united to Jesus Christ. So much so that if you hurt Jesus' body on earth, he says, ouch. You're persecuting me. What does that mean? It means he is one flesh with his church. We're not just, Christians are not just believers in this philosophy about Jesus. Believers are actually united to the living Jesus. They are in him and he is in them by his Holy Spirit. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead is filling his people on earth with abundant eternal life. And Saul continues to process what he's hearing and what this means. He says, who are you, Lord? This word Lord um, is can be translated several ways. One is just, yes, sir, which is a little too vanilla for this passage. You meet God and you just say, hello, sir. Uh, that doesn't fit, does it? The other thing that does fit is the word master. So saying, I know you're up here, I'm down here, so it, it, you could think of it as maybe saying uncle, right? But there's a third, even better possibility, and actually, what is the truth? Kurios is the Greek translation for the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the way Hebrew speakers spoke of God, whose name was so holy that they would only speak the vowels and not the, all, the full letters, which we would say is Jehovah, right? They would never say that. But the blinding glory and the voice points us in the direction of this is God himself. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus who lived and walked and breathed. I was a Jewish man. I was a teacher. But I am the Lord. And Jesus acts like the Lord. What does he do? He tells Saul what to do. He said, go into this city. You were going to go there to persecute me. You were going to go there to capture my people, um, touch my bride. But I'm stopping you, and I'm going to change your course. And this points us to something about the beauty of how God converts us. We, we use sometimes this word sovereign grace. Which means he's doing the work. Because what is Saul seeking? Well, he's seeking a religious direction. He believes he is pursuing God's will. But sometimes we de describe conversion as turning your life around. Or it was just January last month, right? Turning over a new leaf, right? The new you. But what about Saul? He wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't looking for another life. <clears throat> but his way that he was pursuing collided with God's way and his life was forever changed because God's plan for saving him cut him off and God turned Saul's evil intent to something good. He even says later in Philippians, I was apprehended by Christ. Because sometimes we think, oh, I convert and, and I come to faith in Jesus. I'm going to grab Jesus. Jesus, I tag you. You come in my life. You be my Savior. I tag you. Aren't you glad I tagged you, Jesus? What do we see here? It's the other way around. God says to Saul, tag, you're it. 
you're mine. And more than that, you are now, as we're going to see in the words of Ananias given to Saul, you're my chosen instrument. There's a word that maybe rubs us such the wrong way. Oh, he chose me? I thought I chose him. But in the mystery of his grace, he makes stubborn and angry, and as we even confessed in our confession of faith, our dark minds, our stubborn hearts, he changes our hearts. It changes our direction. So he's fasting for three days. He is led. Look how gently he's led by his companions into Damascus. The very man that was going to bind people and throw them in jail, God in his tender and sovereign mercy has his armed guards leading him into Damascus because he has his eyes open, but he cannot see. So what does God say to Ananias? You'll see a man blind but praying. These are three days it says he didn't eat or drink. Saul knows about religious vows. He knows about prayer. He knows about consecrating yourself to God. And for the first time in his life, he is now praying as if his life depended on it. To wait and see how will God heal him and restore him. But he begins to think, my life and my future was all wrapped up in professional Judaism in promoting and protecting and practicing this religion and killing those who who uh, polluted it. But now I've met the heavenly Lord. Now I'm blind. Who will give me sight? And better yet, who will give me a vision for my life? Because I don't have one anymore. It was broken. It was invaded. It was uh, contradicted. It was canceled by the sovereign Lord of heaven. My plan for my life cannot stay the same. And that's what we should expect when we are converted to Christ. He is now Lord and he is now calling the shots. And we have to ask, what new thing do you want now that you have given me new life? No longer like, how am I going to fit this new relationship into my ordinary schedule? He cancels all future appointments. He says, Let's sit down and think about what's new and what's next. So our last point is we see now the church receives a new brother and a new leader. And Saul met Jesus, but now he is sent to meet the very ones whom he has set out to persecute. This also shows us that, that it is not enough to just be rightly related to Jesus. The very next thing we discover to our chagrin is Oh, he has a people. Oh, he has a family. And I am now part of them. And they are part of me. So he is led to uh, wait for Ananias to come, who will lay hands on him, and, and he will receive his sight. He will receive baptism and the Holy Spirit, and he will receive food. But let's put ourselves in Ananias' shoes for a second. It says Ananias is one of the disciples in Damascus. His name would have been theoretically on this list. And who now, let's be honest, is interrupted by a vision from Jesus. Someone's like, I would love it if Jesus showed up and told me what's next. Talk to Ananias, right? 
oh boy, I have to not only talk to this guy, but I now have to be a brother with this guy who just yesterday was about to come kill me. And Ananias is wonderfully honest with the Lord, and he's not zapped by Jesus for asking this question and saying, "Uh, I don't know. He's like, we've all heard what he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, to those who call on your name. And what does Jesus say? He is my chosen instrument to carry my word to kings and the children of Israel and to the nations. He tells Ananias, I have chosen Saul. Now you have to receive him. And some of you maybe been to small churches or a campus group where they embarrass visitors, right? Oh, I see you. You're a visitor. Stand up. Have your friend introduce you, right? And thankfully we don't do that here. But imagine Ananias, his first Sunday in church. Ananias, it looks like you have a visitor with you. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> this is Saul from Jerusalem. He is our brother. Welcome him. Welcome, Saul. Um, but they know, is that, yeah, that's the Saul that you have heard about. But in Ananias receiving uh, Saul as a brother, what is he saying? And what is he teaching us? He would say, though my sins are different than Saul's, My Savior is the same. We are now one body together. He is now a brother. We have the same spirit. We have the same baptism. We have the same hope. And now Saul. How does he have to then think of himself? Saul, for the first time, he's no longer Saul of Jerusalem. Who ha- people have to listen to him because of the tassels on his robe, and he and he gets out his uh, uh, seminary diploma signed by Gamaliel himself. What is Saul now? He's brother Saul. He's just another one of these believers in the way, who had the same faith, who had the same baptism, who had the same Holy Spirit. Marked now with the name that, together with his brothers, the high priest, had forbidden the apostles to speak. An irony of ironies. Now he is going to be one of the greatest speakers and church planters and writers of the New Testament. And it might seem like a little thing, but Saul becomes just one of the saints. And in one day, because he has met Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, he was now holier than all the days combined of his years as a Pharisee. Because he was forced by the violent grace of God to trade the power and prestige of religious leadership and become a son of God. To become a brother of Jesus and to trade all of that power and that prestige for a seat next to a shopkeeper a servant girl, or a tax collector who call on the same name, the name of Jesus. So he joins the common mission of all Christians. But you notice in verse 16 how he was given a particular unique mission. He says, and and Saul must know how much he must suffer for my name. 
He was the one that was going to bring the suffering to Damascus. And yet God, in his grace, it says, Saul, I have grabbed you. I have laid on you a mission. And with that mission comes great suffering. In fact, he says later in his epistles, my job is to fill up in my body the sufferings of Christ. Jesus could only live and suffer for 33 years. He's like, I'm going to live the rest of my days suffering for the sake of this name. And he would not be an apostle of power, but an apostle of, of weakness. And as Paul says later to Timothy, through his life, we would all get a picture of the gospel. How God has mercy on those who oppressed the church out of ignorance. We would see through Saul's life that he has strength for the weak, not for the strong. And that God's wisdom of the crucified Messiah Jesus looks like foolishness, but it is the foolishness that saves the world. And so as God brings converts like Saul into his church and into this church, what should we expect to see? Three things. We should expect to see new life. And when people receive the joy of knowing the gospel and knowing this Jesus, they have had the glory of Jesus shown on them. And when that happens, we cannot stay the same. He is Lord. He is raised over all things. And he raises us out of our sins and then sets us on a new course. So this isn't a new life of our making where we get our act together, turn over a new leaf. We have been invaded by a new life from above. God's glory and his grace and the person of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. This sets us on the second thing that we should expect of converts is a new mission. Instead of fighting God's purposes, we join them. We are part of now the way, the way of suffering, the way of rejoicing. Now that Jesus has happened to us and like the early church, we are to gossip this news to all who will listen. His glory shone on me. Let me tell you about it. This is what I was doing, and this is what I am now doing because of Jesus. I'm not better than you. I am new because Jesus has happened to me. Then the third thing we see in someone who's been converted to Jesus is new sight. Praise God, the the scales fall from our eyes, and suddenly we read the scriptures and go, wow, I read this my whole life, and now it is like someone turned the lights on. Paul says, every day that Moses is read in the synagogue, it's like a veil is over their face. They don't get what they're reading, but in in Jesus, the veil is removed. He's like, I can't get enough of this stuff. This is so good. Why didn't you tell me about this before? I did, but you couldn't hear it until God's light had shone on their hearts. So as we close, as Ananias and Saul discovered, though our sins are different, Our Savior is one, and he is our Lord, and his mission is worth every sacrifice. The sacrifice that Ananias had to go through of welcoming a former enemy into fellowship. And the sacrifice of Saul was sacrificing his rightness for someone else's righteousness. That only Jesus is worthy, and he has made us one in his body. And to be united with him is life itself. And to be found by him, to be hunted by him, is nothing short of life-saving.
It is salvation itself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for hunting down the people that you want in your family. If you waited for us to hunt for you, you would be all alone. And the table would be spread and there would be no one there. But we know that you are setting the table and you're bringing people to the table, your family table. And so through the gospel, the offensive gospel, that Jesus was crucified and he was buried and he was raised and he ascends to the right hand of the Father and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. This Jesus is Savior and Lord. So Lord, transform us, convert us from our old ways, even our old ways of seeking to please you in the ways that we think is right. Would you uh, transform us, give us new life, new mission, and new sight. And may we rejoice when you bring uh, people to you and bring them to us, that we would see that you have touched them, you have changed them. They are now part of the way. They are brothers and sisters that you have chosen to live together with us in this glorious gospel. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in his name we pray. Amen.